we want to do in this series. We want to deepen our, our commitment, understanding of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. I love that song we just sung. That was just a home run that really gets it where we are headed. But before we go to the series, let me just mention a, a couple of rather miscellaneous things. First of all, I want to just say something about prayer. We want to be a praying church. We want this house to be a house of prayer. And there's a couple opportunities for you on Sunday mornings. I just want to remind you of, Chris mentioned this communication card. What you may not know is over the last couple of years, the number of prayer requests that we get that are filled out on that communication card, either dropped in the offering plate, taken the information desk, or you can do it online, the number of those we have received has doubled, probably actually tripled. Sometimes I read some of these requests, and I'm just broken by the intensity of pain in, in, in people's lives. We want to stand with you. We count it a privilege to pray with you. Let us do that. When you have prayer requests, let us know. And along that line, every service after the service, we will have members of our prayer team down in front. They would love to pray with you. Take advantage of this. If we are not praying, we're not anything. And if we're not a house of prayer, what are we? So as we move into this fall, a couple of ways we can pray with you and for you. I also want to reiterate what Chris said about Get Life Magazine, man. I want you, uh, don't leave the building without picking one up. If you have to knock somebody over, knock somebody over. But get one. And that's because it's full of, of testimonies of what Jesus Christ is doing in, in people's lives. When I got mine, I could hardly put it down. And I mention it because it really illustrates what we're mining for in this series in the Gospel of Mark. As we get to know Jesus, the one who changes everything. And the final thing I want to say is this week and next week, we begin our men's and our women's Bible studies. And this Thursday, men, I start at our men's huddle the year off with a brief two-week series on sex and money by Paul David Tripp's. Actually, it's based on Paul David Tripp's book by the same title. And I am increasingly convinced if Jesus is going to reign in the lives of us men, we've got to be willing to do battle with these two idols, King Lust and King Greed. So I want to invite you men, 6.15 Thursday morning in the gym, just across the hallway, to join me, to join us as we engage in battle that Jesus Christ might reign in our lives, that we might follow him. Now let's turn up the lights. I want you to grab a Bible in front of you, turn your Bible on, and let's turn to the Gospel of Mark. There are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark is the shortest. Mark is the simplest. It's a fast-moving account of the amazing ministry of Jesus Christ. But there are three main reasons. I'm going to take a little time here 
why I want to do this series at this point in time for our ministry right now in the Gospel of Mark. And the first is this. Mark clarifies Christ. Mark exalts Christ. Mark helps us in a variety of different ways by exposing us to Jesus to answer this question, who in the world was Jesus Christ? Now, this is critical because throughout our culture today, we have elevated the preeminence of our feelings over the preeminence of Christ. And we do that all the time, even as Christ followers. We are studying the gospel of Mark to turn that around. I was a sophomore in college, great state of Texas. I had a great life. I was a business major, and I was convinced I was going to set the business world on fire, make millions of dollars, dating a beautiful girl from Houston, Texas. I was wild, I was reckless, and I was one of the last persons anyone would have ever thought was going to become a pastor. Man, I was full of myself. I, I was so arrogant. My, my feelings and my commitment to fun, to partying, was preeminent in my life. As a matter of fact, my sister Lucinda used to say, Rob, you know that song by Carly Simon, You're So Vain, your biography. It's your biography. One day, someone I really respected boldly and really at risk uh, said to me, hey, hey, Rob, Jesus Christ has changed my life and he can change yours. And I was dumbfounded. Never heard anything like that in my whole life. And we had a conversation, began to ask him a lot of questions. He kind of unpacked what God has done in his life. And, I, and I, was, I was confused because on the one hand, I really respected this guy. But on the other hand, I thought Jesus was irrelevant, ancient, religious news. Kind of somebody for losers. An intellectual crutch for weak people. That's kind of how I'd been raised, kind of what I thought. But his statement to me that night in our fraternity house began a journey for me. And I began to investigate, look into who Jesus Christ really was. I didn't know it at the time. I was clueless, but God was in the process of drawing me to himself. So I started reading books. I, I read a Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, Lewis, John Stott, Basic Christianity. I attended a, a couple of Bible studies, which was way out there for me, and they weren't all that bad. And I started to talk to some Christians and, and, and listen to them as they talked to me. Along the way, some weeks and some months go by, and somebody, I don't remember who, but somebody gave me a Bible. And they said, start with Mark. It's short and simple, Robin. You need short and simple. And so I started with Mark. And I began to read Mark, this gospel we will study. And while I was reading the gospel of Mark, God opened my eyes. God gave me faith. I came to Christ. And my life, I want you to know, was totally, completely, radically changed. I was reading Mark. The famous Chicago pastor, A.W. Tozier, from a previous generation, once said, to many people, Christ 
is more like an idea or best an ideal, but he is not a fact. That's how I had viewed Jesus Christ all my life. But as I started to read the Gospel of Mark, and, and the deeper I went into the Gospel, the more I realized that Jesus wasn't just a myth. That Jesus wasn't just this weak religious figure that ended up having his life taken. Jesus repeatedly claimed to be God, did things to back up those claims. And Jesus said, either you have a relationship with me or you don't. And if you do, you're going to heaven, and if you don't, you're going to hell. Simple and straightforward. And it changed my life. Now some of you are just like I was. Uh, your life is going pretty well. Things are basically pretty good. And, and, and the truth is you don't think about Jesus all that much. Well, I want to welcome you to this series on Jesus and Mark. And I want to help you along the way. And I want you to know, man, you are not alone. And our journey through Mark, well, our journey through Mark is for you. Now, a, a number of you know Christ. And some of you have known Christ for years. And as we travel through the, the pages of the Gospel of Mark, man, I want to help you turn some lights on. I want to help you recharge, recalibrate, realign according to who the Jesus of the gospel of Mark is, that the fuels and the juices and the electricity might go based on a fresh vision of the lordship of Jesus Christ. You see, all of us have this nasty tendency to dethrone God. I do it all the time. Man, I have this tendency to want to view the world as mine, want my feelings, my, my, my desires, my preferences to be preeminent, and then I, I want to go after things my way. But the self-centeredness in our lives, or the envy, or the lust, or the, or the greed, or the anger, or the impatience, uh, those things that, that dominate our hearts can only be broken by a power outside us, and that power has a name, and his name is... Oh, that was really weak. <laughs> I mean, weak, right? We need to get on our knees and ask for forgiveness. <laughs> and there's a power, and the power has a name, and that name is? Jesus. Yeah, there we go, there we go. And that is why we are studying Mark, to learn about the majesty the beauty of Jesus Christ. There's a second reason we're studying Mark. And that is Mark clarifies what it means to follow Jesus. It, it clarifies what it means to respond to Jesus, what it means to be a disciple. Now, I had something bad happen to me over the summer. I turned 60. I know you find it hard to believe, right? Yeah. But I turned 60. And, and the truth is, I'm not very happy about it. I'm really being honest. I'm not happy at all about it. But it's not the first time in my life I haven't been happy about God's plan for my life. You know what I mean? And, and, and what's going on is I'm beginning to realize that I'm the only one that thinks I'm young anymore. My kids sure don't. 
But also as, I, as I'm getting older and I realize the clock is ticking, there's another thing going on, and that is, man, I don't want to waste my life. I don't want to fritter my life away on secondary things. And I don't want you to build castles in the sand that are just going to crumble and disappoint you. We are studying Mark because now more than ever at this point in my life, I long for our church, Wheaton Bible Church, to be part of a larger movement of God's people that's going on all around the world right now who are laying aside small dreams, laying aside what's comfortable, what's easy in order to give themselves to following Jesus Christ wonderfully, radically, totally, and completely. I long for us at this point in my life to be part of a larger group of the people of God that are gladly sacrificing the pleasures and the pursuits and the the products of this world for the treasures of the world to come, the ones that matter. But the rub is we are sinful, fallen people. I am, you are. We have sinful, fallen tendencies. And we have this insane tendency in our lives to make our desires, our ways, ourselves preeminent. And we foolishly look to the stuff of creation to satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. But the only way that'll turn is when we allow the Creator, the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ to become preeminent in our lives because He alone uh, frees us from uh, the bondage of sin and addiction and idolatry. And I will say this over and over as we travel through Mark, you will never ever satisfy the deepest longings of your heart apart from Jesus Christ. It just won't happen. And Mark will help us in following Christ. There's a third reason for Mark. And that is, interestingly enough, and really surprisingly, Mark prepares us to handle pain, disappointment, setback, hardship, and adversity. That's because Mark was uh, written to to readers in, in Rome, we believe, Uh, around Rome, who were living in a a horribly unstable world, a deeply troubled world. And and there was big-time persecution and disaster and looming on the horizon. And and Mark is writing to to readers, to to Christ followers, uh, because of their commitment to Christ and what it's about to cost them. And God the Spirit is using Mark to prepare them. Uh, Now, interestingly, today, pain has this crazy tendency to push God out of our lives, or, or, or I should say to push us away from God when we need Him the most. Because our pain says to us, man, if God loved you, if God really cared about you, this wouldn't be happening right now. And it's happening, uh, so God doesn't exist, God doesn't care. Uh, We need a faith for both sunshine and storms. And we really need that today. And Mark will help us get there. 
So let's begin reading in Mark chapter 1 and verse 1. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, I was talking to a guy after the last service. He was in a Ph.D. program at the University of Minnesota. He'd sort of walked away from Jesus Christ, and somebody said, read the Gospel of Mark. He read the Gospel of Mark. He read just verse 1, and his life totally changed right in the middle of his Ph.D. program. And he recommitted his life to Jesus Christ based on verse 1. I'll come back to it. Verse 2, it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. you got to love the guy. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven, or rather came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert. And he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Now, some beginnings are soft and subtle and low-key, but Mark's is not. Because in verse 1, this fascinating verse, he makes two incredible decisions, or assertions, rather. And the first is that this account of Jesus Christ that is about to unfold is historical. Not hysterical, historical. And he calls it, notice the language, the gospel. Now the gospel, that word is an ancient word that means good news. It's a compound word in the Greek or good story. And it was used before it was adopted into the New Testament to refer to the saving act of God in Jesus Christ. It was used prior to that to announce the good news often of victories in battle. But the only way this could be good news about a victory in battle, so to speak, is if this actually happened. Mark is claiming this account is historical. Then at the end of the verse, at the end of verse 1, he claims Jesus is God by describing him as the Son of God. That's Mark's blue-chip description for Jesus, emphasizing Jesus' deity by talking about his pre-existent, eternal, familial relationship with God the Father. So when we fast forward to the end of the Gospel of Mark, at the crucifixion, the centurion, the Roman centurion, is standing at the foot of the cross and watching all that has happened, Jesus being crucified. The centurion says, surely this man is the Son of God. Statement of deity. Now, not too long ago, uh, one of the presidents of the American Society of Atheists, or the American Atheist Society, a guy by the name of John Murray said this, and I quote, 
There was no such person in history as Jesus Christ. There was no historical, living, breathing human by that name ever. It's a myth. End quote. Now Mark, the author of the gospel that bears his name, was a disciple of Peter, and Peter was a disciple of Jesus, and the gospel of Mark is likely a condensation or distillation of Peter's preaching, and Mark wrote this account just 25 to 30 years after our Lord Jesus was crucified, which is really early by the standards of ancient documents. So one of the choices as we come to the Gospel of Mark, each of us must make, is who's right? Is Mark? Is this history? Or is John Murray right? It's all fiction, all myth. Now that's verse 1. Beginning in verse 2 through the rest of this section we read, verse 13, Mark describes three events that make up the beginning of Jesus' ministry or the beginning of the gospel story. Now these three events uh, tie together. They form a triad, if you will, because they all take place in the desert or the Judean wilderness, which was an incredibly harsh, difficult place. It still is. I can't imagine what it was like 2,000 years ago. And in all three of these uh, uh, accounts or these events that Mark quickly mentions, the Holy Spirit is mentioned as well. Event number one, the longest, is the ministry of John the Baptist. That begins in verse 2 here and it goes through verse 8. But I want you to understand, John the Baptist's ministry wasn't a coincidence. As a matter of fact, Mark wants us to be clear about that. So beginning in verse 2, in verses 2 and 3, he tells us that John's ministry was prophesied in the Old Testament hundreds of years before John ever entered into that ministry. And he does that to show us that's how important Jesus is. Because the one that did the advance work for Jesus was prophesied in the Old Testament as well. And we have a mix of a couple properties here under the heading of uh, Isaiah. Now, when we read this section on, on John, if you're like me, you think, man, this guy was a trip. This guy was a case, man. This guy was eccentric. You, you, you read this and you, what, how he dressed and what he ate, and you think today, man, he's right out of Duck Dynasty. <laughs> you know, it just, just fits right in. He dresses similarly to the famous Old Testament prophet Elijah. And, and the way he's dressed and his lifestyle, man, this rural uh, stuff, man, it's getting people's attention. And verses 4, 5, and 6 tell us that he is courageously calling Israel to repentance, which in the Bible, by the way, is to both turn from sin and to turn to God which means there's a big difference in the Bible between guilt and repentance. Because guilt is how you feel about something you did, but repentance is what you do about it. Turning from it, turning to God. And frankly, one of our biggest problems today is we have this tendency to wallow in our guilt. Usually it stays secret, and we never move to repentance. 
And here, repentance is bringing things into the light. So John calls Israel to confess sin, to turn from sin, uh, to repent, and to turn back to God, and then to publicly demonstrate it by being baptized. And thousands, tens of thousands of of Jews are, are coming and doing this. And you got to stop and ask yourself the question, why? Why all the fuss? I mean, to go from Jerusalem to the Jordan River through the wilderness, through this desert, was about 20 miles. That was a dangerous road trip. Thousands, tens of thousands of Jews are doing it. Why? Because John is announcing that there is about to appear the promised Messiah. He's on the horizon. And Israel needs to change. Israel needs to repent. Israel needs to get ready spiritually. And John is the first prophet in what, 400 years? Later, Jesus will say, John was the the greatest among men. Thousands of people are flocking to him. He was prophesied in the Old Testament. He dressed like Elijah. Elijah. He, he says of Jesus that he's not even uh, worthy to uh, untie a sandal and that this one who is coming will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And so do you see what uh, Mark is doing in recording this ministry of John? M- Mark is telling us all of this because the ministry of John the Baptist points to the deity of Jesus Christ. I'm not even worthy to untie a sandal. Man, he's bringing the Holy Spirit. It all points to the majesty, the beauty, the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now let's keep going. We see the same thing in the next event, the second event, the baptism of Jesus, which is recorded beginning in verse 9 through verse 11. Now if you go to Matthew's account, Matthew will tell us that Jesus didn't get baptized because he was a sinner. He was perfect. But he got baptized in order, Matthew says, to fulfill all righteousness. And that in baptism here, Jesus is identifying with the nation. He is identifying with this rule, um, renewal movement, rather. And he publicly accepts his role as Israel's savior. Here Jesus is saying, I'm all in for this nation. I'm all in for God's people. Really, he's saying, I'm all in for all the people that God has made. And he is publicly anointed for ministry. And his public ministry starts right here. And and what are the the results? Well, I I mean, look at verses 9, 10, and 11. The heavens are ripped open. The the term there is torn or or ripped, uh, suggesting drama and trauma from uh, a divine perspective because of the, the launching of Jesus' ministry. And and a tear suggests things are going to be different going forward. So the heavens are torn open. The Spirit descends as as a dove, suggesting Jesus' gentleness and purity. And God the Father speaks. 
and says, this one is my son. And man, do I love him. And man, am I pleased with him. And if you go back to verse 1, as I I mentioned, in verse 1, Mark claims that Jesus is the Son of God, and here in the Jesus' baptism, God the Father does the same, and God the Father here puts his divine stamp of approval on God the Son. And Jesus' ministry is about to begin, about to begin. And another thing in this baptism, we have the Trinity, the God of the Bible, the Christian God, is a triune God. One person who subsists as three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And all of them here come together, indicating the cosmic significance of Jesus pointing to his deity and pointing to the the wonder of this ministry that's about to take place. That brings us to the third event, and that is uh, the temptation of Jesus in the desert or in the, the wilderness. Here in Mark, it's briefly described in just two verses, verses 12 and 13. Now, the truth is you and I have experienced this or something like this. I mean, the sequence is Jesus is anointed. It's a high point of his ministry, and then all of a sudden, He's at a difficult point. Man, in the desert, 40 days, Satan tempting him. Satan attempting to brutalize him. So you decide to follow Christ. Maybe you decide to do something bold for Jesus, something big and bold. Uh, maybe you, you decide, man, you're, you're going to move overseas or, or you're going to go after this neighbor or you're going to do something, you're going to start a Bible study for uh, coworkers or something. It's something big and it's something out of your comfort zone and you decide to do that, you commit to do it and the next thing, what happens? You get clobbered. You get hammered. And that's Jesus here. He is being tested in the wilderness. Forty days and the wild animals suggest the danger. Now Mark doesn't say it. Matthew is a little clearer in his account. But unlike Adam in the Garden of Eden or Israel in in the wilderness, Jesus passes the test. Proving he is the new Adam, uh, proving that he is the new Israel, fulfilling uh, all the promises, who will reign over Satan because Jesus is God. Now Mark implies this when he tells us the angels attended him. But he's tempted. God's plan for you is that you would live for Jesus Christ and you would deny yourself, that you would live for Christ and deny yourself. And the way you live for Christ is by continually, repeatedly denying yourself. Satan's plan for you is that you would live for yourself and deny Christ. It's just the opposite. And at the heart of every temptation is this decision, am I going to deny Christ or am I going to deny myself? That's always going on in temptation. Now, God loves you, God cares for you, God's got a wonderful plan for your life, but that plan involves pain and adversity and disappointment. But God knows that needs to be a part of your experience in order to build you and help you become more and more like Jesus Christ. Satan 
wants to come to you in those moments of darkness and say, look, you've been abandoned. Look, these circumstances are terrible. God doesn't love you. And you need to move out on your own. And you need to take this into your own hands. I say this because Satan tempted Jesus and Satan will tempt you. And at the heart of this temptation is always this test. Am I going to deny Christ or am I going to deny myself? And often it takes place right when things are going really well. So Mark tells us that Jesus' beginning proves his deity. Uh, And he brings these three events uh, together to demonstrate this crazy, outrageous claim that he's going to make over and over in this gospel uh, that, that God would send his son to rescue this planet from our self-centeredness and our sin through Jesus Christ, who is his son, who is God in the flesh. And all the Old Testament prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus. I got to tell you, that reality changed my life. Turned my life upside down and inside out, and I have never been the same. And that reality can change yours. And it can change it each and every day of your life. Because the only way we will ever uh, respond to the magnitude of the words, Jesus' words, follow me, is by living in awe of the majesty of the me who said them. We don't get to follow apart from the me. So announced by John, baptized in the Jordan, tempted by Satan, attended to by angels, each of these signposts right at the front end of Jesus' ministry, Mark is almost in our faces pointing to the deity of Jesus Christ. And why does this matter? It matters because, number one, when Jesus is not in his rightful place in your life, your tendency will be to put yourself in his position. And then along the way, you won't wake up in the morning and decide to do this, but along the way, you will do things that destroy you. Addictions. Bad decisions. Awful, self-centered things that you say. Because Instead of Jesus being in his rightful place, it's you in that position. And so you will do things along the way that will destroy the very you you're you're trying to build. And along the way, you will overweight those things in your life that ultimately don't matter that much. But if conversely, we recognize who Jesus is, We elevate him, make him preeminent as Lord in our lives, and we bow to him and we worship him. We do that gladly and orient our lives around him. We will be free, not problem-free, but idol-free. And we'll spend a whole lot less time complaining, man, and we'll spend a whole lot more time giving thanks, and we'll be grateful, and we'll laugh a lot more, and we'll be less angry. 
and more patient. And when Jesus is in his rightful place, you will give, not just take. You will love and you will serve. Because your eyes have been opened to, to see that life is not about you. It's about Jesus. You see, Jesus alone, the, the, the deity, the lordship of Jesus Christ alone keeps us from this in, insanity of trying to be our own king. And frees us, it, it, it frees us to worship him as the majestic, beautiful, righteous, and holy king of kings. And so Jesus here, Mark here, invites you and he invites me into his kingdom, which is a much bigger, much more beautiful kingdom than anything we can construct. And along the way, i got to tell you, Jesus will make you feel small. But he will never make you feel alone. He will never make you feel unloved. He will never make you feel insignificant. So may God give us the grace as we start this series to see Jesus for who he is, to see Jesus as Mark saw him, that we might live for him as we follow him. Father, thank you for the privilege of your word, for the privilege of studying your word. Would you open our eyes that we might honor you, that we might exalt you as we serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.